Hello and welcome to this this uh, special Sweet Two on Two Extra. Uh, Julia and I interview each other. I'm Tom Overton and I'm joined by my co-host. Julia Jakes. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, today we're going to talk to each other about... Actually, Julia, why are we doing this? It's astonishingly self-indulgent, isn't it? We wanted to do an interview about the programme for Verso, because both of us are Verso authors. And somebody from Verso, uh, John, suggested that um, as we were both immersed in the show, maybe it just made more sense for us to interview each other and Verso would host it rather than someone there have to do all that groundwork. Do it ourselves. Fair enough. That's... <laughs> so the, the show is all about uh, Sweet 212, our radio show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Also available online. A show that puts the arts in their social, cultural, historical, and political context. Well, I keep saying social. It's not really that's not part of the tagline, is it? Uh, yeah, it is. is it? It's oh, absolutely okay. part yeah. of the, okay. the tagline. Um, I remember when I was about eighteen and I was starting to write, and I someone asked me how I wrote, and I said I was was interested in the socio political. And even then, like someone said, this is in the late nineties when, of course, you were just told not to touch anything like that. And even my friend who was the same age as me just said like. Man, everyone hates that. Don't do that. I mean, the tagline, I wanted to get at the fact that it is basically a leftist arts programme. And it's, I didn't really want to call it anything as direct as like a left-wing arts programme. I mean, that taps into issues around the title as well. I actually thought about calling it cultural Marxism uh, <laughs> because I thought it'd be funny. And then I thought, A, someone else has almost certainly done that already. B, it's not really a Marxist show. It's not. To paraphrase Ernst Bloch, it's not not a Marxist show, uh, but it's not it's not an exclusively Marxist show, um, and I I don't know I just kind of felt it might give people the not quite the right impression of what we do. So this tagline of social, political, historical, and cultural contexts, I think that's really interesting. I think a lot of arts coverage doesn't really describe or discuss the wider sort of intellectual. Or political context that something arises out of the kind of artistic discourses the formal discourses I mean I'm a modernist really yeah. um, you know with an interest in postmodernism, uh, just to spite Jordan Peterson really but um, you know I, well, I'm, I mean, that was why, why you think about calling it cultural Marxism pretty it? much was to spite people like that <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah just you know spite. he's given me a new lease of life with his little Kermit voice but coming from this sort of modernist background you know I'm very interested in you know where something sits in a kind of cultural lineage and how it innovates and how it engages with the world around it was that I mean that's kind of the do I suppose we should explain the talking about lineages and sort of uh, timelines and movements and things to explain that uh, this is did you founded this did yes when, when yes I did I mean we we did our first episode in July of last year so 2017 I mean, off the back of the general election last year, I think a lot of us on the left were quite energised, were quite excited, you know, kind of had a sense that the old media was dying. And it was kind of not just dying, but it was on this sort of kamikaze mission of, you know, being determined to make itself as kind of irrelevant and unpopular as possible, whether that was kind of, you know, entrenching this like transphobia in the face of, you know, a new type of feminism that was much more kind of like trans-inclusive and intersectional and or whether it was like entrenching a kind of a centrism that also seemed to me that it was kind of dying. And I looked at a lot of the kind of left media uh, that was coming up. So I think the New Socialist was going by then. Mm. Um, Navarra obviously been going for, I think, probably since 2011, I think the first episodes of Navarra FM mm. on Resonance. And I've been listening to their back catalogue a lot. Yeah. I've listened to everything. And, you know, enjoyed the shows, but noticed that they didn't really cover the arts very much when they did culture it was more kind of pop culture and even then you know they don't do that that much it's more kind of you know they're interested in ideas and there's a lot of people who've been on Navarro who I could also imagine having on Sweet 212 yeah. um, you know someone like Will Davis who's you know very engaged with sort of how culture and politics intersect for example yeah. um, but you know the emphasis with him and with Navarro in general is more on politics and less on arts and I kind of wanted to spin that mm. on its head um, I mean, there are other podcasts that came up that I like. I think Media Democracy is really good, and that was responding specifically to how and why the established established media got Corbyn and the election last year so wrong. 
and I've really, really enjoyed following them. You know, Real Politic I enjoy as well. I mean, its tone is is quite different. It's quite irreverent in lots of ways. Um, but you know, there's some interesting kind of political analysis on there as well, analysis of film and music they've been covering a lot. Yeah. But again, it's quite different to what we're doing. And, you know, Politics Theory Other with uh, Alex Doherty, I think, is really, really good. And again, yeah. there's space for culture within that format, but he's mostly focusing on on politics. There's an element also about, um, when talking to you about it, Cor- like Corbyn's art policy, and the kind of in the, the run of, in, uh, which was obviously part of that election and the way it was discussed. Yeah, I mean, there was there's two two interesting things about Corbyn's art policy. One was the the very popular moment where he was on stage at that gig at the Tranmere Rover Stadium at Prenton Park, and you know he starts saying to people like, "Look, there's a poet or a painter or whatever in all of us." Of course, that was the gig where that kind of old Jeremy Corbyn chant kind of started, and you know that was really when you started to get a sense of a kind of popular movement and. One of my favourite things about Corbyn and the Corbyn project, I mean, you know, I have my criticisms of it like I think anybody does, but I think one of my favourite things about it is it really brought a sense of poetry back into politics. You know, you've had this kind of centrist technocracy really dominate, you know, the Labour Party in particular for the last kind of, well, as long as I can remember. And they very much see politics as like, not even a science, but just like business management. Uh, And it's, you know, it just had nothing for the soul. It was the most joyless form of politics and to me you know politics is an art and politics is full of the arts mm. um, and the arts are political and full of politics I think one of the things connecting that to talking about your sort of essential modernism is, is uh, the way that Ulysses was discussed and the fact that this couldn't possibly be something that this, this, this man was interested in as if it was completely missing a lot of the points of the book and a lot of the well this is it i mean there's a lot to say about ulysses i mean firstly like yes of course it's a famously quote-unquote difficult book but it's also you know a huge part of irish popular culture um and english language culture you know um it's it's a book that has has a real presence you know culturally um in the context of that sort of way it was discussed i kept on thinking about the, the bit where He's wiping his arse on the newspaper. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but um, you know, you can fill in the name of some like god awful centrist columnist because there are plenty. Let's face it. You know what I found interesting about that was was the responses both to the um, the speech at Prenton Park and him saying like he likes Ulysses when he said like Ulysses. You know, lots of his kind of ideological opponents are saying no, you don't like this isn't for you. With the speech about everyone having a poet or a painter or a playwright inside them. You saw certain, again, kind of ideological opponents of the the left saying, don't encourage them. And it's like, well, why not? You know, I think we do want as many people kind of creating things as possible. And not everything will be great. Not everything will be good. But, you know, I do have a real problem with the kind of cultural establishment in this country being dominated by like a handful of voices that, you know, to me seem quite tired like 15 years ago. I mean, that's one of the, that becomes one of the interesting things about doing the show on resonance rather than sort of other formats. Why why did you gravitate towards Resonance? Yeah, I mean, Resonance was partly because I, you know, I really liked Navarra and I liked the idea of having to structure something for an hour-long radio slot. Mm. Like, I mean, obviously we've done some of the Sweet 212 Extra episodes and they tend to be a bit longer. You know, firstly, I liked the idea of having to structure something. Secondly, there had been lots of other kind of arts and cultural programmes on Resonance that I'd liked. Um, I appeared a few times on a show called Cafe Calcio around about 2011-12, which uh, David Stubbs used to be on every week as well. And of course, David was one of our guests on the episode on The Fall that we did recently. But, you know, Cafe Calcio, again, took this kind of like unashamedly intellectual approach to football. Mm. And it wasn't this kind of authenticrat, to borrow Joe Kennedy's phrasing, this sort of authenticrat take to football that you get even from people I like. I mean, Jean-Philippe Toussaint is more or less my favourite contemporary writer mm. in general. I love his writing. Mm. And his essay about Zinedine Zidane, Zidane's melancholy, is like one of the most kind of wonderfully speculative and strange pieces of writing about football that you'll ever read. Mm. But then his book about football, I found quite disappointing. And it, it just went down the kind of, I'm a clever person, but I like football. How am I going to manage this kind of route? You know, I don't think that's that interesting. Uh, Cafe Calcio, you know, had me on to talk about football and homophobia. 
amongst other things, really interested in the ideas around football. And there's been other programmes on Resonance doing similar things um, out in South London. I've been on a few times with Rosie Wilby. And again, very kind of cultural look at LGBT issues. So it really felt like the show would have a home there. Yeah. Do you think, just hearing you talk about that, just made me think that perhaps we need to do some kind of, find the right way to do a Resonance, uh, sorry, a, a Sweet Team and Two show uh, on football, or maybe several. And I think one of the ideas we've been sort of buzzing around is doing one about football mascots. <laughs> having some, some mascots in the studio Kit Kalis from Influx Press the first time he met me he was like you're the person who keeps posting all that stuff about Gunnosaurus aren't you and you know I'd written all this stuff about gender and sexuality and uh, film and music and literature and the arts and you know I, I went off on one about uh, mascots observing minute silences um, because when Saturday comes did a thread about it uh, because I basically thought and still think it's the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Gunnosaurus, if you're listening, we'd love to interview Gunnosaurus, come on, sweet 212. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I would read the Gunnosaurus diaries, actually. I would definitely read those. I don't know what his voice sounds like. Uh, Jordan Peterson, probably. <laughs> I was thinking he probably does sound like Jordan Peterson. This podcast was already incredibly self indulgent. <laughs> Let's try and move things on. Uh, what? Why, why the name Sweet 212? Why the name Sweet 212? Okay, so I was trying to name the show. And the tagline that we've talked about came to me relatively easily. I kind of thought, this is what I want the show to do. But then I have to choose a title that somehow epitomises that. And the problem I had was, you know, I basically I made lists of, you know, various sort of fairly politically informed films, novels, plays, works of art. Um, and the problem I had with it was that a lot of the time, the names would be too specific. Mm. Um, so, you know, obviously one of my favourite pieces of political art is Battleship Potemkin, but you, <laughs> you just can't call the show Battleship Potemkin. It would have been awful. Uh, and I looked through lots of old kind of Soviet cinema. I mean, that was the obvious source of of a title, but none of them really caught the right mood. I thought about naming it The New Babylon after Grigory Kosintsev and Leonid Trauberg's film about the Commune of Paris. Mm. But, you know, New Babylon you know, obviously has these sort of like, these sort of sexual connotations, as sort of connotations, as sort of decadence <laughs> that weren't really quite right. That might, um, be, might be sending people the initial email saying, do you want to come on my show? Yeah. <laughs> the new Babylon. I mean, I... Get a slightly different impression of what they're letting themselves in for. Like. Yeah, absolutely. But Sweet 212 is a film by uh, the Fluxus artist, Korean working American, Namjoon Pike. And Sweet 212 was his, like, personal New York sketchbook, but it kind of deals with the media and the role of the media in kind of consciousness forming, to some extent, how it intersects with, like, digital and electronic yeah. uh, technology. And it was quite a collaborative film, like um, Judd Yalkut uh, is on it, who made a film with Yayo Kasama and a beautiful film called Turn, 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 a very short yeah. film which we'll send out, and Douglas Davis and a few others. Um, so the collaborative spirit of Sweet 212 seemed to work and it kind of, it signified something interesting. Obviously it wasn't as literal as calling it cultural Marxism, yeah. but it signified something quite interesting. It was the kind of name of a sort of fairly experimental film which fitted the ethos of the show, yeah. but without pointing to anything kind of weird. I mean, another name I thought of calling it was uh, Hour of the Furnaces after the uh, Fernando Solanas documentary. I think it's Argentinian, came out in the 60s and it's, yeah, it's a real kind of agitprop film. Yeah. Very, very good. I mean, again, you can find that on YouTube and I really recommend it, or at least the first part of it. Second part of it is like a two-hour kind of explication of why you should like support Peron, which I'm not that bothered about. But um, like the first part is fascinating. Yeah, it um, formally makes sense with the hour thing. Yeah, but I mean, Hour of the Furnaces, why would you, yeah. what's, what's that? And I think Sweet 212 is kind of abstract enough to not really raise those sorts of questions, but kind of concrete enough. I'm not 100% happy with it, to be honest. Like, I don't love the name, but like it was the best I could come up with. It's like, it's like band names. Like, oh God, absolutely. It, it kind of, it, once it sticks, it's it's kind of fine. Yeah, absolutely. I've tried to name many a band and it's always been really difficult. But also, with the sort of like, I like the way that it nods towards the Dungeon Park, kind of the, the interest in the form, well, as well as all the various other things that, what was sort of involved with like uh, sort of testing being in, an interest in the sort of the formal sort of possibilities of broadcasting because you did a lot of work with TV uh, sort of went a couple of years ago to Herbert Hasn Film Festival which is about social media before the internet and it was about how actually he had 
we'll post various links connected to some of the work. Joseph Boys, Good Morning Mr. Orwell. Good Morning Mr. Orwell, yeah, yeah. Sort of, uh, which is in 84, this kind of really bizarre piece of broadcasting. But I like the way that it kind of sort of speaks slightly to this interesting kind of moment that uh, that maybe is going on at the moment with, with podcasting. Because, like, I mean, is I mean, I suppose what we're doing right now, given this is an extra, it's very definitely a podcast. Like, this is a sort of like something recorded on a computer, which we're going to broadcast on the internet via SoundCloud, uh, or various other mix podcast providers. But um, the there's a different sort of slightly different aspect to the the main show because it goes out on resonance but is then later recorded but it was essential to me if i was going to do a radio show that it would be something that survived and didn't just go into you know be broadcast and then kind of disappear mm. um i mean obviously that's true of pretty much all radio now i think um yeah. i don't think the bbc keep everything online but stuff is online for at least a while but it's sorry just, just to cut in there that's a real thing because in my kind of day job I write a lot about uh doing this by with John Berger and like some of his early stuff, his earliest sort of like work was on radio, but it, you know, there's no record. I mean, I wrote a book on um, the English writer Rain Happenstall, who did a lot of work for the BBC's third programme. And, you know, if you look at the BBC archives at Caversham or online, uh, you can find tantalising records of really interesting contemporary programmes with poets and writers and adaptations. He did, did the first adaptation of Animal Farm. I think Orwell was a friend of his. Yeah. Orwell was a friend of his. Uh, and this is all lost because the BBC didn't keep it. Yeah. Now, of course, that's you know long since changed. Yeah. What about their radio output? I think television, they've been keeping everything for the last few decades. But it was very important to me to build up an archive. And with the show, you know, often we do things that are topical. Um, so, for example, you know, we've done shows in response to the death of Marky Smith. We did one recently in response to the death of the publisher, John Calder. Mm. Uh, so in that respect, they're topical. But also, I think you can... You know, I hope there's enough of a permanence to them that you could go back and listen to them in five years' time and they would still be kind of interesting and relevant. Yeah. I don't want to fall over myself to do things that are kind of timeless because I, I think the most dated work happens when you're trying to do that. Yeah. You know, it's very important to have something that retained an archive. I mean, podcasting is something that I've become increasingly interested in over the last year or so. I mean, it's funny, with, with this show, I actually tried to start this show five years ago uh, when I was sort of... I'd been on Navarro once or twice and was sort of starting to listen to that fairly regularly, although I can't remember when it became a thing that I would listen to every Friday when it was broadcast. But um, I listened to it fairly regularly and wanted to do something similar. Uh, originally, I wanted to call it like Writers on Writing because at the time I was just getting to know a lot of both fiction and non-fiction writers. Yeah. And I really liked the idea of just talking to them in depth about their practice. And we've done some of that. You know, we did an episode with Sheila Hetty, an episode with Chris Krause, where... We've done that, and hopefully Deborah Levy will do one soon. There are several other people I'd like to do that with. But, you know, obviously I've always been interested in music uh, and film, and over the last few years been spending more and more time with around visual artists. Yeah. And I kind of thought it might be interesting to create a platform where the dominant voices were people doing creative work. Yeah. You do get that perspective to a point in mainstream radio. But not that much, really, and not in that sort of depth a lot of the time. I mean, the BBC do a series called Artists Only, and they've had, like, Stuart Lee interview the artist Rose Wiley, for example. Mm. Uh, but I wanted to do something maybe a bit more sustained. You know, the problem I have with BBC arts coverage is every so often they'll do something interesting, but there aren't any BBC art shows that I think, oh, I want to listen to that every week. Well, that's, there's um, I think that's something that come, maybe has already come quite a lot in the interviews and sort of shows that we've done, that people that we've interviewed I'm thinking immediately of uh what I did with with the filmmaker Mike Dibb or say something you did with the filmmaker Peter Watkins uh these are people who kind of their careers began at a point in which like they felt like well actually you know there was a, an openness to sort of certain sort of work they were able to carve out a career within some BBC and did sort of like what is still sort of like extremely radical and interesting work that um i don't i don't know i think it's 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 there's a danger of being nostalgic about this that kind of uh that's you know there was this period where everything was easy to make because of course it cost a lot more money no these programs were anomalies at the time it's important to remember that they were made in the face of intense hostility and in peter watkins case obviously you know the war game famously uh withdrawn um and he didn't work the bbc again um, 
I mean, this is something that's always interested me is like the limits of what you can do within institutions. You know, obviously, like seven, eight years ago, I was writing regularly for The Guardian, The New Statesman, and I was quite interested in what was possible within those frameworks mm. and how much you could kind of push the boundaries of what they would permit, uh, ideologically speaking. And often you could do more working within culture than you could writing directly about politics. That was very interesting to me. But people like Watkins, like Mike Dibb, John Berger, people later, like people I grew up with, like sort of Adam Curtis, Jonathan Meeks, who felt like they had kind of slipped through the net. Yeah. And, you know, because the, the BBC obviously occupies such a kind of monolithic place within British public life and within British cultural life, you pay attention to what's happening there. And yeah. it is kind of it is interesting and it feels like almost an event when a, a left voice or just an interesting voice or somebody doing something markedly different comes through there. But yeah, you have to remember it's always done in the face of intense uh, institutional resistance. Yeah, I, I can remember being at a sort of round table, not even a round table, it was a kind of gen, a general discussion sort of thing, a thing at a free school actually, around the, the anniversary of John Berger and Mike Dibbs' Ways of Seeing collaborative TV, TV series which is very sort of reflexive about the way that media specifically TV but kind of uh, broadcast media more generally work the question being asked about whether or not that was a better time to be operating as someone making sort of interesting arts broadcasting and a contemporary artist um, put their hand up and said that actually they thought that there was a lot to be said for making work now because like there was the tools were possibly more sort of uh, widely distributed mm -hmm. kind of like where say someone like Peter Watkins for instance would have needed sort of like some very expensive and cumbersome equipment to make a film that's a lot easier to come by now and like the fact that we're recording this on on a, on a laptop in a way we would have needed a recording studio before so that's a, you know there are positive yeah I mean that's very democratic and the means of distribution you know we will send this out on Twitter we'll put it on SoundCloud it might not reach a massive audience, but you never know. You know, you make something, you put it out, anything yeah. could happen to it. I think that's really interesting. And also, you know, you find that there's frustration built into working with big institutions because I remember being really struck when I was doing a lot of film journalism for Film Waves magazine in the mid-noughties. I did, like, a history of British avant-garde film. The way I periodised it, I think it was sort of 76 to sort of 1984. And there was a really interesting thing happening there. That's the time that, like, Channel 4 is launched, and Channel 4 in particular would show and commission quite a lot of the sort of post-London Filmmakers Co-op artists mm. to make short works, which would be shown like late at night and not particularly heavily promoted. Uh, but, you know, when the filmmakers complained about this, Channel 4 would say, well, look, you know, we're giving you money to make work, and we're broadcasting it, like, how much do people want? Yeah. But, of course, however much Channel 4 gave them, it would never be enough, but Channel 4 were never going to give them that much. And of course, they give them far less now. I mean, you know, when was the last time you saw an experimental film on Channel? Well, actually, no, they do still do some of that stuff, I guess. It's just that it feels like it doesn't because just, you know, so much of Channel 4's programming is is just horrible poverty porn or yeah. kind of post kind of Big Brother just atrocities. That, um, I, can, I can remember going to, uh, I think it was the memorial service for <coughs> poet Christopher Logue, uh, and they, one of the things they played was um, some really early stuff they'd done for Channel 4. They played it sort of like as part of the the, the evening, and it was just a black screen with him reading from Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> and this 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 came on in the adverts in between programs. <laughs> this was sort of like completely unannounced. It was just him reading from Richard the Third. Yeah, I mean that's almost kind of situationist, isn't it? Sort of use of culture as a way of like jolting people out of complacency or familiarity. You, um, get, you do get that kind of. If that sentiment, is, if that uh, spirit has gone anywhere, it's probably to resonance. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I would listen to resonance when I first moved to London, kind of six or seven, seven years ago, and I would put resonance on in my kitchen while I was cooking. And uh, the thing that always struck me was the hooting yard. Have you heard that? Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. I don't know if he's still doing it or not, or if he's even still alive. It might not be. Uh, but he would just do these like really weird monologues. And, you know, you would really have to listen. You need to follow them. But he'd do that. Um, Simon Munnery, who I think is one of the more interesting figures in British comedy, is pretty much the only one who hasn't revealed himself to just have like really tedious politics. But, you know, he used to do this Simon Munnery's experimental half hour, which of course lasts an hour. And that was just kind of gloriously strange. And Resonant gives you room to experiment like that. I mean, with Sweet 212, um, no, I don't really feel we've experimented a lot with the medium as yet. And actually... You know, I like it to be fairly straightforward. I don't really want 
me or you when you host it to really kind of overwhelm the guests or the subject matter. I mean, probably the most formally experimental one we've done was the episode you did recently with um, like Sarah Shin and So Mayer yeah. and Ignota Press, um, which, you know, I obviously quite nice when you, you host the episodes, partly because it gives me a week off, but <laughs> also because I asked you to cover for me while I was away earlier this year when we were doing mm. a monthly show and then to co-host it when we went weekly in September. And I wanted you to do it because I knew you were kind of on my wavelength, but I knew you would create programming that I'd want to listen to. Yeah. Uh, and that Ignota episode was was exactly that. It did come out to be quite different. I mean, it came out really well. Um, but I suppose with that, it was very much that the the form and it was the one that just fitted the subject matter very very obviously. It was very natural to have because we were talking about a book of poetry uh, to have readings as part of that. I think that's that's kind of something that is a bit of a thread through the the the, the artists that we're we're interested in. Kind of like we've. Quite a nice Picasso line about something about he wrote to his dealer saying his dealer asking him sort of why how his art dealer to, yeah he's a, <laughs> <laughs> well these things often are quite blurry. Uh, asking him why he'd uh, how he'd managed to kind of like work in so many different forms and sort of all these very apparently unconnected styles and he says something about whenever I've had something to say I've said it in the manner in which I felt it ought to be said yeah. and like it's I think that's kind of true of lots of the people that we've we've interviewed and kind of worked with that, that we're interested in them because they've B.S. Johnson was always very uh, the sort of writer and sometimes filmmaker B.S. Johnson was very sceptical and sort of uh, cautious of having the words experimental sort of mm. apply to his work because he thought that experiment implied that he'd failed. Yeah, uh, there's something I, I don't know if he really came up with an alter, like a satisfying alternative to express express that kind of. I've never really heard anything. Of... Innovative feels like you're making too grand a claim for yourself. Like yeah. it's not your place to call your work innovative. Yeah, or, you know, you're you're dangerously close to describing yourself as groundbreaking if you do that, <laughs> and that's just bad. So no, I mean, I I can't exploratory maybe is a good word, but again, just you know, once you know it's a synonym for experimental, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, you're operating on culture. I mean, I think that's partly just speaks to B. S. Johnson's natural pessimism as well. Like your experiments might succeed. Uh, who knows? I mean, you know, I'm you know B. S. Johnson as anyone who's followed me much at all will know that B. S. Johnson's a figure that I'm fascinated by and have written about a lot. And of course, we did an episode of Sweet Two One Two beginning of the year I think with me talking about Rainer Heppenstall, uh, Jennifer Hodgson talking about Anne Quinn, just a lot of work on Quinn uh, and Jonathan Coe talking about B.S. Johnson having done this brilliant biography of B.S. Johnson kind of and again Coe's book on Johnson really kind of fits this approach you're talking about like the form of Coe's book really engages with Johnson's work and Johnson's interest in kind of exploring the structural and formal possibilities of the novel yeah, I mean, it's um, like the classic thing, sort of like Johnson doing a book in a box. Like yeah, that. absolutely. And I mean, you know, Coe is very careful to point out that actually there are more radical experiments being done like that already. I have, but I've never read a copy of Composition Number no. One by the French writer Marc Supporter, mm. which is the pages are completely unbound. So you read the pages in any order. With Johnson, it's the chapters are unbound, and yeah. you, you have specified first and last chapter, and then you can play with them within that. So, you know, Coe's sort of point about Johnson generally is that he was always striving to make his work more kind of avant-garde than he was actually capable of doing. Yeah. But the the gap where he fails is actually where the interest in Johnson's work kind of lies. You know, I think the best B.S. Johnson work is uh, is his programme on Samuel Johnson for ITV. It's just called like B.S. Johnson, Samuel Johnson. Yeah. Uh, where he is having to just fit his his take on Sammy Johnson into like a half an hour television documentary, but the sort of the schism between the sort of rigid nature of that structure and just B.S. Johnson's sort of essential weirdness and always wanting to break out of any kind of pardon the pun box he gets put in, yeah, um, is where the interest in that work lies. I mean, the the cover image I used for our show on British experimental literature in the post war period is a still from that where um, you know B.S. Johnson is reading out Samuel Johnson talking about publishers. Mm. You know, when was Samuel Johnson around? Kind of like late 18th century, I think. Mm. I just remember him from Blackadder, really. But uh, <laughs> B.S. Johnson reads Samuel Johnson complaining about his publishers. Mm. And, you know, B.S. Johnson 
just was just perpetually at war with his publishers and by all accounts was an absolute nightmare to try and publish because he would you know try and publish these like books in tiny print runs for a very small audience that you know would require them to cut holes in them or put them in a box or whatever actually when i published my book with verso i was expressly told you're not cutting holes in it and you're not putting it in a box so johnson really was kryptonite to publishers but he quotes samuel johnson and just sort of and then flashes up on the screen this title card in this sort of cod 18th century you know font that you would have seen and it just says publishers are parasites <laughs> and it's just on the screen for a few seconds but it's you know it's brilliantly funny kind of moment i think you similarly mean about librarians i'm sure that there's some text that sort of basically i think i've heard about this yeah everyone who's not specifically a writer who has some kind of hanging on relationships with literature he's very mean about you know by all accounts not not the easiest man to deal with but um oh I, I mean i love his work but again you know kind of what interests me about him with relation to what we're doing with Sweet 212 is somebody coming from this very kind of modernist background mm. who was also interested in working within popular forms at the same time as he was interested in kind of creating new forms. It was interesting that, uh, I suppose, <coughs> uh, labour this too much, but like Samuel Johnson's working in a very sort of print you know, kind of like moment. But, <laughs> yeah, I can't help thinking about him through the medium of Blackadder now. Thanks. Uh, but the... But it's you know it's a kind of it's a very kind of print culture. B.S. Johnson kind of kind of less so of televisual age that is commensurate with Verge's stuff on telly as well. I don't, I don't know so much about Heaven's Store about kind of like what his relationships to, to TV is. Well, I mean no relationship to television, but a very strong relationship to radio. Yeah. He wrote a memoir called Portrait of the Artist's Professional Man, yeah. which describes him. Basically, he was conscripted into the British Army during the Second World War. And uh, he had a breakdown. He didn't see any conflicts at all. He remained in the UK. He just had this breakdown. I mean, he documents in a novel called The Lesser in Fortune, which is very, very hard to come by now, but it's probably my favourite of his books. You know, kind of nothing happens in The Lesser in Fortune. But, yeah. um, you know, it that? really... Uh, what year? Well, I mean, it was published in 1953. But, but I think he wrote it, it in the late 40s, maybe 47. Wrote it in this kind of epistolary way. You know, he wrote chapters of it and then posted them. Yeah. to people and uh, it ends up being very similar to the kind of Nouveau Roman yeah. even more so than his first book The Blaze of Noon that Helen Sixou called the founding novel of the Nouveau Roman in an article in the 60s in Portrait of the Artist's Professional Man he talks about having to work for the BBC and working for the third programme and he was actually very grudging about this Cyril Connolly in uh, Enemies of Promise which was written in the 30s I think he identifies I think he identifies broadcasting as something that would take writers away from writing yeah. Um, and of course at that time as we talked about earlier stuff wasn't saved so you know you do all this work and then it would just disappear and Happenstall really resented the BBC for kind of curbing his literary output yeah. but he was you know I, I, I know Happenstall's daughter reasonably well like she's still alive she lives in London and when I did this book in the mid noughties she was um, she was a great help she said it was like a dream job for most people you know Happenstall was like recording with like Jean Cotteau and Jacques Prevert and yeah. all sorts of really interesting people because he was a real kind of francophile you know, knew everyone in literature and, you know, I don't think he quite appreciated like, how lucky he was to have this job in lots of ways. I think it's, I mean, that's something that, I think Orwell sort of says something similar about how like, writers mm. should stay away from work, like kind of the British Council stuff and I don't know if he kind of actually made BBC stuff, but I think he's Work like, that's kind of close enough to writing. Yeah, kind of drain. I mean, I wonder about that with, with the show and my own writing <laughs> and I also wonder about it with journalism. You know, because I do this show you know, on average once a fortnight. It's not the same as having a job in broadcasting. No. And I, I really I really do enjoy doing it, and I enjoy doing the research, and I enjoy the conversations with people. Yeah, that's certainly one of the reasons that I agreed, agreed to, to, to get involved, because a lot of the time it's just a, a really great excuse to kind of sit in a room and talk to people who know more about more than you do about a kind of like a, a really often something you're interested in. But like the other day, sitting and talking to, to Clive about... Uh, Black film is kind of like a, an amazing sort of. I mean, was, I, I think it was a conversation, but I was certainly kind of like we sat there just learning stuff. Just oh God, absolutely! Um, and having my own preconceptions challenged about things. You know, sometimes we've done shows about subjects that I'm very familiar with, and even then, I sort of come away knowing new things about them. Sometimes it's things I know less well. You know, there's always a new perspective to be had, and you know, even how much you think you know everything about a subject, like you don't, you never do. But, you know, this subject, this uh, structure is quite flexible, you know, like, 
it might give me an opportunity to meet a hero of mine, mm. but also to meet them in a a way where you can actually have a conversation as equals. Yeah, I suppose that's a, there's sort of a few different sort of, there's a very sort of loose, brief is the wrong word, but a loose sort of format that we, we seem to evolve in. But there are kind of, there are different sorts of shows that we do, we'll do sort of kind of retrospective ones where we look back over someone's career, either with the artists themselves or with uh, an expert on them, sort of, say like the Peter Watkins show we yeah. did with Gareth, Gareth Evans, a thoughtful curator who knows so much about his work, or a retrospective that I did, talked about this before, but also with Mike Dib about his own work and kind of, you know, Bill, the Bill Morrison one that you did, but more things that are almost kind of looking into the future, like kind of the, the one, the New Sons one with Not Press, kind of things that are just beginning and there's not there's not kind of a set form but they're sort of maybe the two of the sort of no i mean there are certain shows that yeah like you say are talking to or about creative artists and then there are the more kind of intellectual history shows that i think i've done um the world war one series that i'm doing at the moment i mean we've just recorded the first one which will broadcast on Monday, but I mean, you know, I don't know when this is going to go online, so the temporal sequence here is just completely fucked, but the chances are that this will be online after that's broadcast. But anyway, the World War One series that I'm doing, with one on the UK, one on Germany, one on France, yeah. uh, this very much draws on an undergrad history course uh, that I did during my degree in the early noughties called European Intellectual History from Rousseau to Freud. So it started off with the Enlightenment um, and with how the Enlightenment ideas fed into Rousseau's work, social contracts, etc., um, and then fed into the French Revolution, yeah. and then you follow all the way through, you know, the creation of conservatism, Marxism, Nietzsche, revolt against reason, Darwinism, uh, liberalism, all of these things emerged in the 19th century, uh, and the conclusion of the course was kind of the cultural impacts of the First World War, uh, kind of tying in with, like, the impact of Freud, of modernism, mm-hmm. and going on to, like, surrealism. Uh, and that course in general was an incredibly formative thing for me, you know, it really kind of shaped the way I look at cultural history and the history of culture and, um, you know, how art and politics do relate to each other. And the, you know, the impact of the First World War really interests me. So there's the kind of intellectual history episodes that we do. I mean, that's kind of something that ties back to the earlier conversation about the form of radio broadcasting. One of the people who wrote very eloquently a huge degree of precedence about the impact of the the ongoing impact of the First World War was, was Walter Benjamin, who himself experimented quite a lot and very interestingly in radio. Mm. And has this sort of interesting relationship to how those things were preserved and how they weren't, and sort of like the relationship between the script and the broadcast and this whole idea of performance. I mean Benjamin, you know, he's one of those figures, a bit like John Berger, that this show would be unimaginable without Someone like him, I mean, you know, that is absolutely to say that the best and most important thing about Walter Benjamin is that he made Sweet 2 on 2 possible. I think, you know, he would be very happy if that were to be his legacy. But, um, like, you know, Benjamin... That's what he Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there's a very famous Benjamin quote, isn't there, from um, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, where he talks about, you know, fascism makes politics into an aesthetic. Yeah. And the way for us to counter that is to aestheticise politics no politicized aesthetics sorry it's getting late um but yeah that's absolutely what we're trying to do i mean you know i said earlier there was a gap in you know this kind of this culture of kind of left-wing podcasts that have come up that they're all kind of fairly directly political or they're dealing with culture they're largely dealing with the media but there's also a gap in cultural coverage in that i can't think of any major or even not particularly major uh, regular cultural programs that have a kind of explicit and deliberate politics to them. Mm. Um, and I mean, you know, obviously lots of kind of like criti- uh, critics in the leftist tradition would say that just means they're conservative, either small mm. or largely conservative. And, you know, that's a point of view I broadly agree with. Even in our time of the left. Always, always. Is it Melvin Bragg who does that? Yeah. Yeah, no, and I've always said we need a Melvin Bragg of the, <laughs> the left, but not Billy Bragg. I guess we've already got a Bragg of the left. and It's interesting to think about you know, what a kind of, you know, a response to Benjamin's kind of clarion call yeah. looks like in the present. And I mean, one of the things I do with the show is after every episode, I listen back to it and I list 
all of the cultural references unless we kind of you know mention something that's you know only really kind of in passing it's not particularly relevant to the discussion or whatever but mostly i list all the references uh and then tweet out links to them put links on the soundcloud page and benjamin and sweet underscore two one two absolutely sweet underscore two one two on twitter or tweet dash two one two on soundcloud but i always do that because firstly i was very struck by the line in Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent when I saw a documentary years ago where he talks about certain ideas, you know, not being allowed into the mainstream so that when they are articulated in the mainstream, they just sound like they come from Mars. Mm. Uh, so what I wanted to do with this was, you know, when we reference something without that much time to go into it, give people the tools to look it up. Yeah. Uh, but also there's something interesting about just listing all the references. There's technique, I can't remember who did it first, but where you take a text and you just list all the words in alphabetical order... And, you know, if the word comes up more than once, you include it, how many times it came up. But it kind of, you know, it gives you in this sort of quite comical way an idea of what the underlying concerns in that piece of text are. But you kind of, you know, you can do that from from listing all the references in episode of Sweet 212. And, uh, you know, you can go through, I mean, like the episode you did with uh, Ollie Mould. Yeah. For example, like, you know, at the same time, I think Benjamin probably comes up there. You might not, I can't remember, but, um, you know, people like Oasis will come up, like the, the band, yeah. uh, and things like that, the Spice Girls come up, and, you know, I'll just list them all, because... Um... <laughs> I mean, that's, another, that's another good one, though, of something that uh, is already happening, I mean, very consciously, in the case of, say, the series that you're doing at the moment on the, the cultural legacy of the, of the First World War, in the sequence of shows we do, there's already a kind of a conversation which is happening between the individual shows, mm. like... Uh, in the Ollie Mould show, he talks about your show uh, on the cultural policy of uh, the GLC. Yeah, the cultural democracy uh, show, yeah. And, the, and then sort of that conversation I had with Ollie Mould sort of like ended up echoing forward into the conversation I had with Clive Mwonka about uh, Black Film because in a way that I think actually generated something which I hadn't thought about before, which was that we talked in, in the Ollie Mould show about uh, how... He associates sort of um, nineteen oh seven and sort of like a Blairite sort of cultural policy uh, and cool Britannia with Oasis, but then realised that the whole moment was actually also the moment of So Solid Crew, and that, yeah, <laughs> and also kind of like technically So Solid Crew were sort of part of Cool Britannia, just as much late nineties as as the kind of post Britpop thing. Yeah, I mean they kind of they filled that gap really, didn't they? But it tells its own story that, that we think about think about Oasis. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not, so I mean, yeah, there's definitely enough of a back catalogue now for the um, the show to have sort of developed its own kind of internal logic. I mean, you can see that in other podcasts as well. I mean, like Real Politic is a really good example of that. Like they've sort of just developed this sort of range of like kind of fairly strange in-jokes that mostly come out of like baiting centrists on Twitter that you kind of have to follow the show quite closely now to sort of understand like, well, not closely, but like... You have to come in at a certain point to understand why they're always going on about Mike Gapes, for example, like the Labour MP for Ilford, who did this bizarre speech about milk, which, um, if, if you've seen it, it's a weird response to Brexit, where he's just going on about milk in Parliament and where it comes from and what happens to it. Um, but it's sort of it's delivered with the sort of passion and intensity of like Jimmy Stewart at the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's really, really strange. Um, and, you know, it's become one of their many in-jokes. So... Do we have any in-jokes? I don't think we have any in-jokes. I mean, I don't know if we have any jokes at all, really. Um, I mean, there's the odd, like, funny line, I think. Um, We're extremely serious. We're very, very serious people. Um, We might have to do the football mascots one. That's kind of like relief. But, I mean, yeah, we're digressing again. But uh, what are we talking about? Um, (laughs) This is is clearly, I mean, it's not quite an in-joke, but it's clearly odd. It's in joke between us. It's not an in joke on the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very much. I mean, you're All always basically whenever anything <laughs> happens that's funny about like any sort of sporting mascot, like you will always like email me or direct <laughs> message me or whatever. I have a handful of friends who will always send me anything to do with. Um, for that reason, you've with, generally already seen it with mascots. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, there's been certain mascot things that have just come my way from like three or four different people yeah i mean it's definitely definitely a subject for a future series but um a future series i think so i think there's a whole episode just on cyril the swan to be honest but uh of, of swansea i can't remember what we're talking about uh, but yeah i mean no the, the way the shows talk to each other um you know yeah there are sort of certain strands and you know they're different directions that probably won't always talk to each other but yeah there are you know for example like the show with sheila hetty i would refer back to things i'd said to chris Krause. 
yeah. because you know their their work is you know this sort of water fictional lineage. In the first episode on World War One, I, I kind of point out that look, we're not going to cover the cultural legacy of World War One in Russia because that's basically the cultural legacy of the revolution, yeah. which we'd already done in like our second episode. No, I think I think it's already. I mean, it's so much more of it because it's your work than mine, but there's already a sense that like. Uh, you're right about it being recorded and available on, on, on the SoundCloud, but it kind of adds up to a kind of what feels like a kind of coherent text almost. Like a kind of, I, I don't know if like in, in the the individual moment of like uh, of doing an interview, uh, you're always thinking about the necessarily how it relates to the rest of the body of, of stuff, but it seems. Uh, seems to be going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you have a recurring host, then that's kind of unavoidable, really. I don't think it's a bad thing. But, like, for example, you know, there's not many other hosts who would, you know, refer regularly to someone like Rainer Heppenstall, yeah. uh, because, you know, I've written on him <laughs> a lot. Um, and, you know, there are certain other cultural figures that, or cultural concerns that will come up a lot because it's me and they're the things that are kind of significant within my kind of imaginary. And the same goes yeah. for you. I mean, like, when you stood in for me on a couple of the episodes in series one, when I was um, out of the country, you know, I think both the episodes you did, I think it was just the two in series one, wasn't it? It was the literature and translation one that took yeah. Anya Berger as a starting point. Yeah. And in few of my did, but like both of those shows, you know, obviously sprung out of your interest in your work on John Berger to some yeah. extent. Um, yeah. And then obviously went in different directions with that. And then obviously the shows you've done, for this series, um, you know, when you've been hosting the show more regularly and kind of part of the team rather than kind of standing in, you know, develop a kind of wider set of interests. But nonetheless, you know, there will be things that recur for you as there are for, for me, I think. Yeah, I, I think that it comes back again to this of being interested in sort of like a... It's, it's easier to kind of like to do the individual shows than it is to kind of like to, to, to name precisely what the... Uh, the specific subjects of the show. I mean, it's very, it's so it's broad, but like there's a very definite sort of um, sense of, of what we're we're driving at as a yeah. As a show I mean, it's developing every time you do it. Something that I do is because I'm just incredibly anal about everything. Like I keep a spreadsheet uh, with the dates of the show, who presented it, what the subject was, who the guests were, um, and that's partly just to stop us kind of repeating ourselves too much, yeah. and particularly. You know, there's the odd occasion where a show falls through or whatever, and we can't make it, and we have to put out a repeat. And it helps just note which shows you've repeated because they don't go on the SoundCloud, so we don't just repeat the same one every time we're away. But also, it's a good way of seeing what we focused on, and then you know you can look at that sheet and be like, right, okay, well, we haven't really done so much of a certain type of show. Maybe we should get back to that. I mean, something I was doing a lot more in the first series when we were monthly was doing panels with two or three guests which probably had more direct politics to them in the cultural democracy episode with Hassan Mahandali, uh, Lorraine Leeson and Hilary Wainwright from Red Pepper uh, is probably the best example of that when we did a show on gentrification with Laura Grace Ford and Alberta Deman um, and we did one of my favourite episodes on race and racism in the arts with Larry Achimpong and Alexandrine mm. Hemsey from Project Oak. You know those kind of panels very much on the politics of the arts whereas I think in series two you know you did the show with Ollie Mould which I think was kind of looking at that quite explicitly but you know the emphasis has been more on like individual like creative artists yeah. you know with the politics more as a kind of lurking just below the surface yeah. um, and I mean I would quite like to get back to doing some of those more explicitly political episodes I mean it's partly because I've been finishing a PhD and so I've tended to fall back a bit on like what subjects do I know really well mm. and what's the easiest thing to coordinate is me and one other guest so let's do that but I'm hoping in the new year I really want to do a show on the arts in Brazil yeah uh, because obviously this horrendous um, sort of you know revanchist basically fascist government that's come in there uh, I definitely want to do a show about Turkey and Erdogan mm. and how artists have responded to him uh, and his kind of changing policies over the last few years. I really want to get back to uh, doing some of those sorts of shows, but obviously threading them within things like interviews with specific artists or writers, whatever, and the kind of retrospective stuff we've been doing. Yeah. 
That's a good point to draw things slightly to a close. I think that vision of the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just a boot stamping on a human face forever. (laughs) Uh, I do really want to do a show on George Orwell. I mean, it's interesting thinking about the types of figures we do retrospectives on because I prefer to do retrospectives on artists who are not ridiculously obscure but not that well known either. I mean, the extra strand I kind of started partly for when I was abroad, like when I was in Ukraine. Yeah. Or like the show we did with George Mamadov and Mihira Siokolova, um, who are in Bushkek. Yeah, I mean the extra thread is I mean, I just conceived it for anything, it just doesn't fit on the radio for some reason. I mean, this show, to be honest, doesn't fit on the radio because it's just it's too self indulgent. Like mm-hmm. I would actually you know, we've put this here, you can listen to it if you want, if you really like the show and you just want to hear more about it, um, or you've just listened to all other podcasts and you're back happy. You've completed the internet. You've completed the internet and this is like the last thing and you're just doing it for sake of completeness. Um, and, you know, it's like those old computer games where it just goes back to the start uh, when you finish it. You know, this is just too self-indulgent for the radio, really. I would actually feel kind of, you know, <laughs> bad about doing this on, on air. But I think, you know... It's me and you in your kitchen. I think it's fine. Uh, so sometimes things that don't fit on the radio because there's a geographical issue, like so the the show on Kyrgyzstan I really wanted to do, uh, yeah. but Georgie and Mahira are in Bishkek. Like we don't have the budget to fly them over for an episode, um, so we just did that via Skype, and it just about came out okay. I mean, there's some real sound quality issues, but just about came out right. Um, you know, when I was in Ukraine for two months over the summer doing that residency with Izmiatsia, I. Um, you know, wanted to do something on Ukraine because it was so interesting to me. Again, the extra strand worked for that. Or if a figure, you know, wants to respect on somebody who's just incredibly obscure, then maybe the extra strand's the way to do it. But to be honest, now we've gone weekly, I don't really imagine I'll use it as much. Yeah. Um, and also Resonance has a break in August. So if something comes up in August that I want to do, but they're not broadcasting, then that's another way to do it. Uh, otherwise... Uh, Resonance 104.4 FM yeah. every Monday 2-3pm uh, sometimes live not always but um, or as often uh, as we can at sweet underscore 212 on Twitter um, I at the moment have autocratic control over the <laughs> Twitter feed and so it's a mixture of me plugging the show uh, retweeting things and just kind of chatting to a few other people on the left or getting um, in arguments I try not to get into arguments I just can't be bothered uh, life's too short, really. Um, I mean, we found time for an hour-long <laughs> podcast about our own podcast, but even then. <laughs> but there we go. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for for doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.